0: tech talk with matthew dickerson matthew dickerson tech 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 talk talk. sit back and relax it's time to talk technology hello tech hunters and gatherers and welcome to your field of dreams it's tech talk with matthew dickerson and it's the place where you can casually drop a line or cast your net and you'll always walk away with an awesome prize figuratively speaking, of course. Under no circumstances do we suggest that you will literally get a physical prize just for tuning into the podcast. That would be ridiculous. I'm legally obligated to put that out. But I digress. Please, welcome to the microphone, futurist and general all-round good bloke. It's Matthew Dickerson. What's new, Matt?
1: Well, we've got a challenge on our hands. How do we get more people to listen to, well, this podcast preferably, but to lots of genuine factual information out there. Mm. Because I had a a very funny little incident recently where I was coming out of a busy car park. We'd been to an event and the event was several hundred kilometres away from where I live. So I'd driven an electric vehicle there, which seems quite a reasonable thing to do. In fact, I didn't have much choice because I only own electric vehicles, so I had no choice. And I'm coming out of the car park and there was a gentleman standing near the car and he motioned for me to wind down the window, which I did. And he made a statement to me, which was full of fact from his perspective. He told me that an electric vehicle will be no good in a regional area.
0: Ah, well, <laughs> you, you've dropped the word there. It's all about perspective. It is. And the ceiling of your uh, retention of facts and ability to absorb facts comes from that perspective. Very difficult to change perspective.
1: It's very difficult to change perspective. So I said to him that actually it was okay, because surprisingly enough, I live in a regional area. And I was attending an event in a regional (laughs) area and I happened to be in an electric vehicle. So it all seemed like it made sense. No point in having
0: that car at all then.
1: Well, that was what he was telling me. He was informing me that I should, in fact, just get out now, leave the keys (laughs) on the dash and walk away because this was a complete waste of time having an electric vehicle in a regional area. Uh, And I've heard this argument before that... Maybe those EVs are okay for those city dwellers, mm. but outside the city, well, mm. why would you possibly want to have an electric vehicle? And I tried to explain as I'm sitting in the car to this man standing outside my window <laughs> that it was okay. And I
0: explained to you <laughs> about your life choices That's and right. how you've made a grievous error.
1: And so I explained <laughs> it in as much detail as I could in the three or four seconds I had available to me before I lost him. And then he told me that maybe, maybe it would be okay to have a hybrid in a regional area, mm. that would make sense, but an electric vehicle would be of absolutely no use. Mm. And I started to talk a bit further, realising that I was <laughs> on a hiding to absolutely nothing, and he walked away, and I heard him say to the person that he was with that you wouldn't catch me dead in one of those things. <laughs> so I don't know that we've really gotten to many people out there to talk about maybe this revolution yeah, that's happening. So,
0: yeah, why? what's the issue with even hopping into a car to go for a short trip?
1: I don't know. I, I don't. Quite well, other it. than
0: you know, you've got to be travelling with uh, people you're familiar with. You don't want to just <laughs> hop in random cars and Maybe. see where they end up. But, I did uh, want to
1: offer him a lift to his car, but he'd already gone too far away. But that was fine. <laughs> but but it's also one of those things that I didn't ask him to buy one. When he mm. said, I I wouldn't be caught down one of those things, I didn't ask him to get in, I didn't ask him to buy one.
0: But he was worried about you. He
1: was worried about me. I think he was a very friendly, very caring gentleman that was worried about my choices in life. And so, his
0: perspective um, hasn't taken him very far.
1: No, and I think they're going to be the ones, we've got the diffusion of innovation graph and of course you've got the mm. laggards at the very end of that. Without knowing too much about this gentleman, then I would probably put him down around that sort of area, that category. But again, it's about that education, I would have preferred if he came and said, oh, how do you find owning an electric vehicle in a regional area? Does it present any problems for you? And interestingly enough, just for the record, I drove it to an event. I plugged in at the motel that I was staying at. They were really friendly and let me have a PowerPoint near where my room was. And I went to bed and I got up in the morning and I unplugged my car and drove back home.
0: Yeah,
1: I didn't have to waste time at a petrol station. Didn't get tempted by the chocolates or soft drinks mm. at the petrol station. And it was all quite a pleasant experience. And so, again, it'd be nice to have that conversation with someone rather than telling me that I shouldn't own one of these in a regional area.
0: Yeah, we've um, gone from uh, having conversations in a lot of ways to uh, just telling each other. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Is that the social media world or what what do we blame for that? Who knows? We blame society, but we are society, so we're all (laughs) to blame. (laughs) All
0: right. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at some excellent developments in the EV sphere, which is uh, no mistake at all. Uh, We have some luxury super yacht news for those with a bank account in the Cayman Islands. And there's some more interesting developments in the realm of wearable tech for those who like to keep their finger on the pulse, so to speak. But let's get cracking with a significant development in communications. Wi-Fi 7 has hit the ground recently. Did you know there were six other versions of Wi-Fi? Well, me neither. And of course, this one will be bigger and better and more colourful than all the other Wi-Fis. It's a collaboration between some of the biggest hitters in the tech world – which is significant, and it represents a major increase in communication capabilities. But Matt, is this really likely to change much for we common folk?
1: Absolutely, it will. And what I want to talk about before I talk about the actual changes to Wi-Fi 7 is go back to the old Betamax versus VHS days, the old video cassette wars. And many people generally consider that Betamax was technically superior to VHS, but What did we all own? What were all the movies we wanted to rent? What was the Mm.
0: common standard? You just had to walk into Blockbuster and the (laughs) Betamax section had Jaws and Star Wars.
1: That's right. It had the big ones and that was about it. (laughs) So we kind of, we want the best solutions winning the wars. And I believe, without having a lot of scientific evidence to back me up here, that Betamax and VHS war was one on marketing Mm. more so than on the technical superiority. We want the opposite to happen. We don't want the marketing teams to win. We want the innovators, the technicians to win the game. One thing that's nice when we get to Wi-Fi is identifying the Betamax VHS problem. There's a Wi-Fi alliance. So that's a collaboration, not compulsory, not government-mandated. That's a collaboration amongst the big technology companies. So I'm talking about the Sonys, the Intels, the Samsungs, the Apples, the big guys who have said we should discuss standards and come up with some common standards where we're getting the best technical solution, A, and B, then you can make a product and I can make a product and they'll talk to each other. And
0: they can go with Apple's way of doing things. No, (laughs) but we know that Apple had to change to USB-C, so we know that they are somewhat flexible.
1: They are, and when you've got an alliance, I mean, it would be fascinating to be in some of those discussions at a very technical level, but when you've got that alliance discussing things, hopefully they can all put their best information forward. Now, I do wonder... Mm about a point that you've actually raised there. If I'm any one of those companies, if I'm Apple, say, and I've got this great new Wi-Fi product that's going to revolutionise the world and be better than everything else, do I come to the Alliance and do I say, hey, guys, look what I've got. We should all Mm. do this. And the other guys go, wow, that's a great product. Yep, we're all on board. Because if I don't do that and I say I'm going to bring up my own Wi-Fi that's better than everyone else – then you're expecting everyone to go and replace all of their Wi-Fi yeah. products with your product. And I'm not sure that's going to happen. And if we go back to the early days of computers, when it was IBM-compatible PCs mm. and Apple. And that war really was won by the IBM compatible PCs. Microsoft won the operating system war because Apple said, no, no one else is making our product. We're keeping our product. And they, at one stage, maybe had a five, 6% market share and IBM compatible PC had over 90% market share Mm. because they said, everyone can work to this standard. So you might say that Apple have learned from that in certain areas and they've said, well, we should be part of an alliance. So that's the background to all of that. Wi-Fi 7 has just been officially certified and launched by the Wi-Fi Alliance. And when you want to sound smart at a barbecue, you don't call it Wi-Fi 7. You call it IEEE 802.11 BE. There are a number of (laughs) 802.11 versions, but BE is this one. One
0: more for the people at home, please.
1: 802.11 – well, IEEE 802.11 BE. Right, okay. (laughs) So the BE is the important part of that because there are some other So if you say Wi-Fi
0: 7, people are just going to look at you and go, hmm. Ah,
1: (laughs) 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 novice. Right. Now – What is fascinating is that when Wi-Fi was first introduced, it was an occasional product that connected to Wi-Fi because you had Ethernet cables to everything Mm. and you didn't need a smartphone to connect and have lots of data, so you didn't need to connect that to Wi-Fi. You had maybe, maybe if you were very flash, a notebook that connected to Wi-Fi because you could sit in the lounge room and do some work in front of the TV and, wow, wasn't that a revolution? Mm. So now the problem is we've got our phones walking around our house that are connected to Wi-Fi. We've got tablets. We've got watches that are connected. Then we've got TVs or things that plug into our TV for streaming. Many of those are connected to Wi-Fi. I personally prefer to connect them with Ethernet cable, but many Mm. people just use Wi-Fi. Then we've got stoves and fridges and microwaves and all sorts of other things, dishwashers, that are connected with Wi-Fi. The problem is that we obviously end up with a lot of products connected to Wi-Fi and they're all competing for that same bit of bandwidth. Mm. They're all competing against other products around the house. So we need better standards. And so that's where Wi-Fi 7 comes in. Basically, you've got backwards compatibility. So you've still got the frequency bands, 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz, in addition to the 6 gigahertz that Wi-Fi 7 uses. And again, that's so that it can be backwards compatible. You buy a Wi-Fi 7 router, for example, and you've only got a device in your house that works on a previous standard, it will still be backwards compatible. But if it's using Wi-Fi 7, essentially faster and more reliable and more products mm. or more devices can connect. So the the big ones, they're getting down into all the technical differences. You're probably getting five times the speed increase out of Wi-Fi 7. But again, more products you can connect and you've got the capability to be able to have all those communicating at the same time. Some early Wi-Fi had some fairly low limitations in terms of how many products were connected. Yeah,
0: and so as you say, for the common person, there's actually quite a few things at home these days that are trying to connect. Yeah,
1: that's right, without realising it, without thinking, I don't need much in Wi-Fi, but hold on, I've got this, and you start going through all the products, and so many different products are connecting, and you then start to add up and go, wow, how do they all communicate together? Mm. Now, the important part from... The consumer making a purchase here is you walk into a store or go online about to buy a product, then if you see something that's got Wi-Fi 6 or Wi-Fi 6E or Wi-Fi 7, then all things being equal, you'd say Wi-Fi 7. If it was three times the price, you may not go and buy it today. You might Mm. be aware of it and say, I'll make a decision about that. But it's obviously of no use to you in terms of all those benefits until products at both ends are talking Wi-Fi 7. Yeah. So if you're buying a new Wi-Fi router and you go, oh, I'll get that Wi-Fi 7 one, nothing's going to change with the rest of the products in your house if they're still on previous standards. Yeah. But I suppose it's more about awareness, and we do talk about the future on this podcast, so it's more about the awareness. If you're buying one, have a look. If there's products coming out that have got Wi-Fi 7, sure, with price being a factor in there, err towards those – but then as you start to upgrade other products around the household, then you might start getting to the stage where you've got multiple products on Wi-Fi 7. So mm. it's a new standard. It's a new standard that reflects what we're doing, which is basically communicating lots, lots of data, lots of big data now. Uh, I had someone the other day talk to me. They were trying to upload a file and they were very frustrated with the online tool they were using because they had a limit of 10 gigs for a file size. Ten gig is a pretty big file.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, what were they downloading? The
1: uh, it was just video. They'd done a, a longer Gino video project. <laughs> yeah, right. And but it, it was frustrating for them because. This drive that I use, it's it's only 10 gigs. I want to get a big one. And then you can upgrade it and pay extra money and get a bigger one. But that's the sort of thing that's happening there. People are moving around large (laughs) amounts of data with lots of things they're doing. It's not just video files, but we need that extra data capabilities because people are using it. And it's it's a bit like your wage. Whatever money you earn, you work out a way to spend it. It's not as if suddenly you get a, a raise and you go, oh, I've got spare money now. You work out a way to spend it. When we have extra data capabilities or extra storage we work out a way to fill it up or use all that data and that's what's happening with Wi-Fi 7.
0: Yeah. Wi-Fi... Oh, sorry gone backstory there wearable biosensors come in many forms to date and keeping an eye on your on the way your body is tracking is easier than ever before there is a massive charge in the development of these devices a race to produce devices to detect some part of your physiology like nothing before it and there are so many things to detect folks matt wearable biosensors are something of a revolution what's new on the shelves and what is on the foreseeable horizon for us
1: Well, we've seen a little bit with diabetes, and that sounds fantastic. CGM, Continuous Glucose Monitoring. Some of those devices have been out for a little while now. Some of them are connected to insulin pumps, so you can actually have your body being regulated automatically by devices you've got plugged in and connected to you. But because those sensors have been working quite effectively, and some of these are wireless, obviously, you can Mm -hmm. have ones, I've seen ones that are about the size of an Australian 20 cent piece, even some that are about the size of an Australian 10 cent piece, they might just click onto plug onto, I'm not sure what I'd call it, but stick onto your arm below your tricep, just above your elbow on the back of the the arm. And so the technology is good enough now that you've got something that small that has something into your skin that Mm. obviously does the sensing and then has a battery and a transmitter enough to basically transmit that data to a mobile phone nearby. So it's not doing, not using Wi-Fi and going over long distances. It's using something much less powerful so that battery can last. So that seems fantastic. But as the manufacturers have worked out they're getting some progress in that space, they started looking at what else we can do because mm. that technology is progressing. One thing I found fascinating was pre-diabetes monitoring. So people that might be in a risk category for diabetes, they might be getting a bit older or maybe a bit overweight. They might be identified by their doctor as someone that you go, better keep an eye on this because it might be something that you get, but we don't want to wait till you get it. Pre-diabetes monitoring can start to give information and if you're getting a bit close there, then you really need to make some changes to your life habits in some way, shape or form. But then you start to look at other things that you can sense. Now, one of the ones I thought was fascinating was for athletes using hydration levels. Now, the first thing I thought of was a long-distance runner that, can become slightly dehydrated, can affect their performance dramatically. I remember I, I did a, a push bike race across the Simpson Desert many years ago when I was a bit younger and a bit fitter. Huh. And on that, the crucial thing that I identified was dehydration a small amount of dehydration i'm talking about one or two percent can have a large impact on your overall performance Mm. so it was make sure you keep yourself hydrated on there but you can also be overhydrated. that's what happened to me on one day of that ride was i was told to drink 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 we're out in the desert riding so i kept drinking kept drinking and then at one stage about halfway through the day and we'd ride from 6 a.m to midday you'd have a little lunch break for two hours then you'd ride from 2 p.m to 6 p.m and towards the end of that first section there I actually started getting some stomach cramps and oh, I'm not drinking enough so I'm drinking more and more uh-huh. and then finally I, I kind of pulled over and went oh I might just curl up here and die I think I just, it was feeling that bad. Anyway they had a, a course doctor that would come along and inspect people that were on their deathbed as such and he identified that I had hyponatremia which is too much water yeah, wow. so I was drinking so much that I actually couldn't get what well, was uh, flushing my system, if you like, too much. So getting those hydration levels right is critical. Now, I'm not an elite athlete of any st- description, but for an elite athlete, trying to get those hydration levels absolutely spot on would be absolutely crucial, I would think. So they've got sensors that'll do that for you. And if you're in training, trying to work out how much you would have, I wouldn't think you'd use it in competition, but how much liquid you would have for whatever competition you were doing would be absolutely critical. But then you've got things like blood oxygen levels, you got things like your sleep quality. So I think at the moment the whole wearables market, and I'm not sure if something that sticks into you should be called wearables or it's an injected wearable, (laughs) but that whole wearables market, I just think, People out there and some of these companies are going, what else can we sense? What else can we stick into yeah. someone's body? There's
0: so much of, uh, to do with physiology. Yeah. And, and it does really seem like, you know, when I was, I was thinking about this story um, in my preparations, I was remembering uh, a scene out of uh, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman movie, Far and Away. And you've just got this... It's like they open up a gate, and these people just go rushing out of the fields to stake their claim on a bit of land, and and it's a bit like wearables and biosensors are a bit like that. There is just so much space out there to mm. go, and and we've realised, oh yeah, we can do this, we can do this. Oh well, what about what if you could do this? And and so we've got these people developing these these gadgets that um, the sky's the limit.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. Now, of course, we know the the downfall of. Theranos, um in terms of the the whole court case, and you yeah. know, Elizabeth ended up in jail. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And, and the dream of that, the vision of that, being able to detect a whole range of different things from a single drop of blood, sounded fantastic. Mm. Obviously they didn't get there, but maybe it is a case that as technology progresses or as we get sensors that plug on, maybe there's enough technology that will develop that you could start to sense a whole range of different things from something so small. That would be the dream, the ultimate dream. And then to have continuous monitoring of, all those things, rather than go to the doctor and go, oh, can you check my cholesterol? What? It's gone to that. Oh, I shouldn't have been yeah. eating all those chocolates last week or whatever. I'm sure it takes more than a week. But the the process of that continuous monitoring means that we can monitor just how unhealthy we are getting so we can get drugs to address it. No, no. <laughs> <Hopefully> we, can, <laughs> we can change our habits to address it. But the, that whole market, again, biosensors, wearables, injected wearables, whatever you want to call it, mm. there is a huge market there. And I just think some of the things happening now – fascinating and i've talked to people that have actually used it for diabetes for monitoring and it it has changed their life it's a pretty unpleasant process to go through and prick your finger on a regular basis and check things and then take action based on that having that continuous glucose monitoring that is a real life changer for people
0: yeah absolutely apple has launched its new operating system ios 17.3 And while I know that is likely to cause only a small handful of listeners to get excited, it'll add another handful of security features to keep iPhone users smugly safer than everyone else. Matt, what has this digital defender got that others don't?
1: Well, I didn't actually know it was that big a problem about smartphone theft, and in particular with Apple smartphones, because in the past, if you set a basic flip phone down, it was a smartphone... You could probably pick it up and steal someone's phone and maybe, maybe it would have a pin on it, but probably not. So you could start making phone calls or just take their SIM card out and put your own SIM card in and take that phone as yours. When smartphones came along, because we had so much more information on them, then we started to be a little bit more protective of the data that's on there. Mm. We put a pin on there. That seemed like a good idea. We then got to the stage where we've got facial recognition, fingerprints. But the other part is that most of the phones that are out there are locked to some sort of account in the back end. So even if I am sitting on a train and I sneakily look over your shoulder and see that you put in a pin of one, two, three, four, I go, great, I can steal that phone and, now. And I'm don't in. use the pin of one, two, three, <laughs> no, four, that's folks. Right. No, 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 <laughs> definitely four zeros <laughs> instead. <laughs> so you see that and I steal your phone and I put in one, two, three, four, great, I'm in. But then that phone is still locked in the back end to, if it's Apple, to an iCloud account. If it's Google, you can have it, or an Android, you can have it locked into an account as well. So then I've got to try and get past that, and that makes it a whole bunch harder. Mm. But in the meantime, I can cause a bit of trouble on your account and send some emails on your behalf and tell people that I don't really like them anymore and all (laughs) sorts of things. So I can still cause a bit of trouble without actually being able to break into that phone. I can't take the phone as mine because it's pretty hard for me to get past that iCloud account, for example. Mm. But... Everyone is still trying to make things better and safer as we put more of our lives in our phone. So with Apple's latest iOS, they've gone a bit further. And sometimes, one of the big things I suppose in there is sometimes if you have a go at getting into certain things or make some changes, then you can still put your pin in because, oh, it didn't recognise your face, so I'll let you go. But now they've changed it. And you can opt into this so you don't have to do it. If you're a bit paranoid about it, you might do it. Then instead of having... a passcode fallback so you want to make a change scan your face in oh we didn't get it just put your pin in no scan no. your face in sorry you're not scanning your face we're not letting you go any further than that yeah, so I thought that wow. was a good addition the other one is that if you're going to do something sensitive like change your Apple ID password which is you wouldn't want to do that very often mm. you might want to be doing it because maybe you're a thief that's stolen the phone then there's a one hour delay and I think a bank robbers walk into a bank and want to steal some money from the, from the bank vault and it's got the, this is on the a time, time delay. Light, yeah. uh, look, could you come back in an hour, sir, when your <laughs> bank deposit will be ready in an hour's time? And sure we promise I'll, I'll we come won't back have the
0: riot squad waiting
1: for That's you. That's right. So it's the same sort of thing. So I steal someone's phone, I get in, I'm going to change the Apple password, and it says, certainly... This is obviously the legitimate owner of this phone. Just wait for an hour and then you can make that change that you want to make. So again, that just makes it a bit harder for these, Mm -hmm. a bit more problematic. Do they go, Ah, give up on this and throw it on the ground and walk away in disgust? You don't get your phone back, but at least they haven't stolen any more of your information, any more of your data. Mm. So there are things like this they're working through. Now, it might be a bit of a pain sitting around the home to change that and so you don't turn that on where you can turn on the feature that allows you to access things normally in your home, but outside your home, the one-hour delay kicks in. So again, the thief probably doesn't come into your home, steal your phone, and then sit there at your home and make the change. So again, that thought about convenience and also inconvenience for a thief. And that's the trick, isn't it? Putting in a pin is a bit clumsy, a bit of a pain. Facial recognition, all a bit of a pain. Doing all of those things and then... Well, we'll just not worry about those. That's more convenient, but then it's convenient for a thief. So making it so that it is convenient for you, less convenient for a thief is a real challenge. Yeah. So we talked a bit about last week with our breath and using your breath to get into your phone. This isn't using your breath. This is still using the normal biometric checks that are there with a phone, but they're just adding some complexity, some delays, some other things that you can't do with that phone. It might sound a bit morbid to talk about it, but there, there is still an issue there when you've got a loved one in your family that does pass away mm. and you might want to access their phone to get some photos off, to have at the funeral, that sort of thing. Yeah. And that can be a problem then because you don't really want to go into the funeral home and say, so I just need to see my husband <laughs> who's just passed away so I can yeah, show his phone to his face so I can get into the phone. So Goodness there's those I mean. sort of things to think about as well. Yeah. If, you have to, if, if there's no passcode fallback, if that's removed, then how do you get in in that sort of situation? So, yeah, I don't know the answer to that one, but <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not a, a thing that happens that often, but I'm sure when it does, it's a pretty traumatic time for it to happen.
0: For sure. The use of identifying fingerprints in forensic science has not really changed since Arthur Conan Doyle wrote his first novel in the late 19th century. A finger is found, sorry, a a finger, a whole finger, a fingerprint (laughs) is found (coughs) and matched to an ever-growing database to identify the owner of the finger. But that was all pre-AI tech, which is set to improve detective work out of sight. This new AI tech will determine if isolated fingerprints have come from the same person. That's isolated, totally separate, different crime scene perhaps, different fingerprints. Matt, being a bad guy has just gotten even harder.
1: And I do actually wonder how much fingerprints are used because surely if I'm going to go to a life of crime, I go and buy a pair of gloves. Isn't that mm. my first yeah. action? <laughs> surely. But I suppose crimes still happen when they're not necessarily planned.
0: Yeah, spontaneous crimes yeah, from my own personal experience. I'm or, just or, or When I'm committing crimes, I'm...
1: And I don't want to insult too many people here, but maybe the thieves aren't that smart. Maybe some of them actually don't go and buy gloves before they go and break in. Or maybe some of the break-ins they do or some of the things they do, it looks a bit obvious if they turn up with a ski mask and gloves on, Mm. so they maybe don't have those on. But this is quite fascinating. Normally, and we see it from the movie, so we know exactly what goes on. Someone comes in, there's some fingerprints there. They match those fingerprints against a database and they go, ah, we've found Billy Blogs. There's his fingerprint and that's it, all done, matched, have a nice day. But in this scenario, different fingers can be identified if they're from the same person. Now, there were two things I thought of, exactly as you mentioned, different crime scenes. So they might get a thumbprint from one crime scene and a Mm. fingerprint from another crime scene or a different hand. And they may not be in the database. So presumably when your fingerprints are on a database, all 10 of your fingerprints are matched on there. I I imagine when they take your fingerprints when you get arrested, they don't just go Just your little finger, thanks.
0: (laughs) That'll (laughs) do. So
1: presumably these are people that are not on the database. But imagine looking at that and saying, we've got a thumbprint from this crime scene. We've got a pointer finger from this crime scene. It's the same person oh, now that Mm. makes our investigation a little bit different, knowing that we're looking for the same person. The other thing I thought of was a crime scene where they have a number of fingerprints. In the past, they would have said, right, we've got five different fingerprints. Does that mean there were five different people here? Well, yeah, I've often
0: thought about this. So someone, unsuspecting, like, uh, you know, you you come, return to the house, and you start picking stuff up, and then you realise, oh, hang on a second, things don't look right, I think things have been tampered with you, you realise you've been broken into, but you've already been touching stuff.
1: You've been touching stuff. So then, with this sort of technology, presumably you could say, right, we'll do all the fingerprints we've found. We've identified that four of those fingerprints are actually you, the Mm. owner, and we've found three other fingerprints, but those three fingerprints come from three different people or those three fingerprints from the same person. person. So now we've narrowed down what we're looking for from the crime scene. We're looking for one person, or we're looking for three people. So I think... Every extra tool you get is quite fascinating. Now, to do this, they actually took 50,000 fingerprints from 1,000 individuals and then said to AI, there you go. See if you can match up enough similarities from different fingerprints to be from the same person. That's
0: a reasonable sample set. It is. Actually, I, I did
1: think exactly the same. Then after they did all that, they went and did a test. And they took 150 people, 7,000 fingerprints, and said, now, tell me which of these people are the same, which of these fingerprints are the same person. And at this stage, with the early training, 75% accuracy. So not too bad, not perfect, but not too bad.
0: Yeah, but we're talking about machine learning here. Mm. So that's just the start.
1: That's exactly right. So what AI did find is there were some fundamental similarities amongst our fingerprints from the one person. Now, I've never identified any similarity with my fingerprints I've never looked at them close (laughs) enough to go oh I've got a common swirl there go and
0: get myself an ink pad and have a play around this (laughs) afternoon I think
1: might be a thing mightn't it but it's one of those things I still find it fascinating that we can have 7 billion people on the planet and our fingerprints are still unique across those 7 billion people but to then get to the stage where we can with the uniqueness and then recognise the similarities amongst that from the same person it does sound quite incredible but again it's good to see we're getting more and more tools to help fight crime and this will be just another one of those tools that the police or the armed forces or anyone that's got access to then actually use in fighting crime.
0: All right, it's time for us to reach out here at Tech Talk. So many of our stories are directed at the mainstream audience, but what of the neglected multi-billionaire demographic? There's almost never a story to draw them in, until now. For those that thought that they owned everything they needed, we bring you today a super yacht that goes underwater. Matters all the specs and bargain basement price Matt, rich people and submarines, this has got Bond villain written all over it.
1: Oh, it does. I did actually think of Spy Who Loved Me. I think it was Carl Stromberg out of Spy <laughs> Who Loved Me. That was exactly what I thought of when I saw this.
0: But I, Do you know what? The first thing I thought about, rich people and submarines, how can this possibly go wrong? <laughs> That's exactly right.
1: <laughs> I actually, I'll talk about that a little bit because I've done a little bit more on this one to make it just a touch safer than the one uh, that you might be thinking of. Yeah, right. But I actually think this is still appealing to all of our demographics that are out there, not just the rich ones, because I thought we might start a bit of crowdfunding so everyone can contribute to you and <laughs> time I. Timeshare. Timeshare
0: in a super yacht submarine. I wasn't gonna go
1: that generous I was just gonna have it for you and I. So. <laughs> okay.
0: Oh all oh, right, sorry, crowdfunding and yeah, and thank we just, you very much. we well, just thank you for including me in your oh, no, in your no I, thought that, there. I thought that seemed reasonable.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we've just got to crowdfund three billion is the problem. So yeah, okay. I'm not sure how long that'll take get, us. Get charging folks. So I'm not sure I'm gonna go and book the berth <laughs> where I'm gonna put this yet, but This is a super yacht that is a super yacht. This is making those other super yachts. I've seen some of the super yachts that people like Bill Gates own, some of the ones that are out there where they've got, Mm. you know, helipads and jet skis off the back. You know, that's so (laughs) ho-hum. This super yacht... Only can accommodate twenty passengers, so twenty of your closest friends. Yeah, okay. Forty crew members, so two to one ratio hmm, seems reasonable.
0: Wow, twenty passengers and forty crew.
1: That's right. So, so you're going to be looked after. Is the well, you need people
0: to fold the towels, I guess. But well, um, yeah. well,
1: that's right, and people that can also say dive, dive, <laughs> <laughs> because it's just like a normal super yacht with all the things you'd expect on a super yacht, but then
0: forty minions. I think you meant to say <laughs> that's
1: it yeah. exactly, and then you can dive down to. 250 metres, which is pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, you're not going to see the Titanic with that though.
1: No, and that's part of what they talk about. They do talk about the construction here. It's a double-hole construction, so you've got a little bit of a leeway there if something does go wrong. You've got some rescue systems built in. Maybe they were thinking of Titanic tours (laughs) when they were thinking about that. And you've also got mini submarines. You don't use those mini submarines on a day-to-day basis because if you want to go underwater, you just dive underwater. Mm. But the mini submarines are there. If something starts to go wrong, you can jump into the mini submarines. I assume there'd be rules around this that you've got to have mini submarines to be able to handle 60 people, just like you've got to have enough life rafts to handle the people <laughs> yeah, on, on your that's boat. Right. <laughs> then you'd have to have the same number there.
0: Gone are the days when those sorts of things were just like an aesthetic. <laughs> that's right,
1: exactly. <laughs> the thing I absolutely love about it, apart from the – absolute opulence of this. The thing that I love about it is that it's got glass walls. So when you're underwater, you can see the ocean on the outside. That seems reasonable. (laughs) 250 metres deep too. That's right. But you've got a swimming pool. So (laughs) I could be, you and I, in fact, could be with our 20 closest friends. That's right. We could be in our swimming pool underwater underwater and looking out at the ocean Outside. So it'd be like you'd be scuba diving without the scuba equipment was what I thought of because I'm seeing the marine life at 250 metres. That sounds interesting. Everything
0: about your story here is just awesome. <laughs> Everything.
1: <laughs> but I'm just in my... my. There you go. Um, speedos. I was thinking of other words. <laughs> I'm just in my speedos and I'm swimming around in my pool looking at the marine life outside going, this is okay. And then <laughs> you can go, we wouldn't do this, but you could go underwater for up to four weeks We'd have to come wow. up on top once a week because I think to upload our podcast, we'd have to be on top sure. of the water. Okay. And for all those people that donated to our crowdfunding, we'd probably want to tell them how we're going on our super yacht.
0: <laughs> how awesome it is. <laughs> That's right.
1: Just a you people out there that donated. Oh, yes, Thank you very much. This is awesome. Now, the only problem is when we order it, it's going to take a little while because they don't actually have one built yet.
0: Oh, They're
1: right. only going to start building it when they get their first order, which I thought was a bit rude. I thought they should have built a prototype first. Could have had a go on it just to see whether we like it or not, and then decide whether to plonk down three billion. And you probably could put a deposit less than three billion, so you could probably take a small deposit. So
0: when people do actually turn on Bill Gates and uh, he needs somewhere to hide,
1: (laughs) that's right. Two hundred fifty meters underwater for four weeks sounds like somewhere you could hide fairly well. Mm. So it's, I suppose, one of the things that I find fascinating about this from a technology perspective is the fact that you've got this sort of technology that would typically be used by the navy or some of the armed forces that are building some incredible technology, and then an average consumer, well, maybe not average, <laughs> a consumer can just go and buy that same sort of technology and, and say, ha- you know what? Have a toy. I'll have a toy, that's <laughs> right, that's every bit as good, maybe not quite as good, as something that the Navy uses. I wonder
0: how many Navy um, submarines have got swimming pools. <laughs> <of them.
1: laughs> well, if they have got a swimming pool, I reckon that means they've got a leak.
0: The other thing is, if you're 250 metres down and you're looking out a glass window, I reckon it's going to be pretty dark.
1: Oh, there'd be lights on the outside, surely. Surely they would have thought of that. Yeah,
0: but still, what are you going to be seeing? No, but no. Anyway, look, I think it's a great idea. Nothing about this sucks. (laughs) I can't wait till we get ourselves one.
1: That's right. Just (laughs) give me a few weeks to start going.
0: Well, straight from NASA's medical division comes a defence against bone density loss. It's wearable for astronauts who have spent too long in apparent weightlessness where loss of bone density can lead to later medical problems. But the application of this new wearable tech can also help osteoporosis, Matt.
1: Well, I thought of you when I was researching this story. and Because I thought, of
0: my lack of bone density? No, my not, big not at all.
1: <laughs> Neither of those. Right. <laughs> they were secondary <laughs> thoughts. I thought of you because I thought, James is going to be cynical about this one. He's not going to think that this is actually going to be real. Well, it's come out of NASA, hasn't it? Is that right? Well, no, not quite. Oh, okay. I've talked about them before, space food sticks. I used to love space food sticks when I was a kid. I'm not convinced they ever actually were eaten by an astronaut. (laughs) (laughs) They just seem like a lolly.
0: Very non-discerning astronaut. That's
1: right. And I'm absolutely convinced they never actually took them up into space. (laughs) I'm not sure how they got away with calling them space food sticks. This one, they've said, it's been developed by a particular company, partly in collaboration with NASA. Now that sounds Right, okay, like, it's
0: in collaboration. That's with right.
1: That sounds like they might have read a paper from NASA one day. Now, it is a real problem for astronauts. We, as humans on Earth, lose bone density roughly at the rate of, say, 1% to 2% per year. So right. obviously, as we get older, we've got lack of bone density. You can do weight-bearing exercise and things to try and slow that down, but we're typically losing 1% or 2% astronauts, when they're up above the Earth at microgravity levels, are losing about 1% to 2% per month. And this is one of the sacrifices that astronauts make for all of us, that their health is going to be deteriorating in older age because of the fact they've been up in microgravity situations. So NASA obviously do do things to try and help their astronauts not lose so much bone density. They've got various exercises they try and do. So this company has said that they've been partnering in collaboration with NASA And the device, called an Osteo Boost has now been cleared by the FDA. Now, that's also a little bit of a soft way of saying, oh, look, this works, when really all it means is the FDA has said, we clear this, that it's not going to do you damage.
0: Yeah, it's not going to do no harm.
1: Do no harm, that's right. So when you get something cleared by the FDA, it's not a stamp of approval to say, this absolutely 100% does what it says it's going to do. The marketing is right. The FDA just says, no, you can use it. And feel safe that things aren't going to fall apart. So, with all of that background there, what they do claim is this vibrating belt helps improve bone density. So, that's what <laughs> this I thought. It sounds like it's come out of the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it sounded like it came out of the front the page Cowboy. of a phantom comic where <laughs> x ray glasses were right beside it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, it, it might be fantastic. I have not read a peer reviewed medical article on this osteo boost. I'm just really going on the marketing, but it does sound fascinating and it does sound great that we're trying to address bone density because it's Hmm. going to be a problem for all of us as we all age. It's going to keep being a problem. They say that you should wear this belt for 30 minutes a day, at least five days a week, presumably while you're out doing a walk or doing something else. And maybe the walk is more important than the wearing of the belt. I'm not sure. Ah. But it does sound like maybe one of those machines that you put a belt around and it jiggles away and suddenly you, you look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> so it does sound a bit like that, which is why I thought you might have been just a touch sceptical about it all, <laughs> because the the whole process seems to me like vibrating. Yeah, look, I don't know, understand enough about lack of bone density, but vibrating on your bones, surely mm. that's not quite enough to actually do something. But look at it, if you've got bone density issues, if it's something that's in your family, or it is becoming an issue as you get older, then go and look at Osteo Boost. I'm just not saying that I'm totally endorsing it. It's just something to have a look at, and maybe it might help you understand. Don't future.
0: forget a glass of milk a day. That's right. For listeners out there that still haven't bought their first EV, one of the biggest hang ups, the thing EV drivers get asked about the most, is the charging, frequency, duration and accessibility. For EV makers, the challenge is to allay the worry uh, and that requires some more cleverer innovation and infrastructure. Matt, how is the world becoming a better place for EV users?
1: It is interesting, isn't it? Because I think Tesla's success was built on the back of the fact that they built supercharging stations. Mm. So they wanted to build a car, but they knew that no one would buy the car if there was nowhere to fill it up. So they went, hammer and tong building superchargers across the world and that made it easier for them to sell their car so you're right that whole charging scenario is a challenge for people we need to get more places to charge there's no doubt about that Hmm. there are people who live in apartment buildings who have on street parking only they don't have a garage for example or a carport to park their car and I'm thinking of people in larger cities and metropolitan areas, the challenge for them is trying to find somewhere to charge. You don't have to go to a supercharge all the time. You don't have to go to somewhere and park at work and then leave work after half an hour and then go back down and move your car. All that's too clumsy. And unfortunately, it gives people the excuse to say, ah, well, once I can do this, that's when I'll buy my electric car. So some companies are coming up with some different ways of doing it. And this is a few spots from around the world. In London, for example, there's a company that's basically taking lampposts and allowing uh, an addition to be added onto a lamppost to have a charger. Now, a lamppost has got electricity in it already. So that's one of the challenges. You need to get some electricity there. Now, when you've got the amount of electricity that you need for a lamppost, you're not going to have a supercharger. You're going to have a lamppost that's got the ability to charge up, and typically these are at the sort of 22-kilowatt level. Now, that's the sort of speed that you'd charge up in a home charger, a fast Mm. charger at home, to give listeners a bit of an idea a fast charger at home might charge up at the rate of, say, 70 to maybe 100 kilometres per hour. Mm. Superchargers might do 800 kilometres to 1,600 kilometres an hour. And then a normal PowerPoint might add 10, to maybe even 20 kilometres an hour at most. So a fast charger here, you plug into a lamppost, it'll charge up maybe that 70 kilometres an hour at that sort of rate, which is fine if you have a lamppost out the front of your house and you've got on-street parking, you go, oh, Once a week, I need to put a bit of power in. I'll plug in and I'll leave it plugged in for five or six hours and I'm fully charged and ready to go again. So it's that type of charge we're talking about. So one is the lamppost where they're saying we'll add a a lamppost. That's got the technology built in to be able to still charge the person for the charging because obviously the council or the electricity authority that owns that lamppost, they want to get some money back for the electricity that's being yeah, used. For sure. So that's one. There's another one in a, a Dutch company that basically replaces the entire lamp pole with a, an aluminium one. That's a little bit dearer, but it's designed to be, I suppose, a little bit more uh, streamlined, not something that sticks out the side of it there. So it probably looks a bit nicer, but you'll mm. pay a bit more for it. But the same concept, you're using the electricity that's already there and converting that. The other one that I liked was one that, basically plugs in to the ground. It's a Scottish company, this one, that uses a a device that sits flush with the pavement. You'd walk along, you wouldn't really notice it. You'd see various manholes or manhole covers mm. that are on the, in the footpath. And this would look like that, obviously much smaller. It would look like, say, the size of a aluminium can, a circle about that big. And you come along with a certain, it's called a lance, and you basically have that lance if you're going to use that particular company. You flick open the top, you plug your lance in, plug your car in, and away it goes. Cool. And that obviously all charges you as well. Again, that company that's doing that says... We've got electricity running in the ground, maybe to provide power to our lampposts, maybe to provide power to some of the housing, so we can use that power that's in the ground already. Those ones are a little bit dearer to install because it's digging up the ground, but again, it gives you that flexibility and convenience afterwards. So we jump forward 10 years, we'll see cars parked at various places where they'll have things in the ground or things on lampposts that it's just normal. We've all seen some of those pictures that we've got someone with a power cord hanging out their window across the tree on a footpath and dangling down to their car, and that's trying to show how silly this electric vehicle concept is. And again, people will do what people need to do, but it's changing from there. The last one I wanted to mention was a device called a NIO Bolt Bolt E, B-O-L-T hyphen E. And it looks like a suitcase, and what you do with that is you plug it into a PowerPoint, plug it in wherever it's convenient for you to charge it up. And that can be a nice slow trickle charge. You can charge it for a couple of days if you like. And then when you find that your car is running out of power a bit, you roll it down on its wheels and you plug it in. And then it, it is a supercharger. It put 300 kilowatts of power wow. into your car. So you might plug that in for 15 minutes and away you go again. Now that seems like an extreme example to me because with something like that, I'm paying for a big battery basically that yeah. takes the power from one spot and moves it around. But if I was pulling my hair out going, this is terrible. I've got no PowerPoint there and I've got no lamppost. I've got no way I can charge this car. That would be a very convenient way to do it. The great part about that that I loved is you could plug it into your house on off-peak power, so you pay very little for your power, or plug it into your house if you've got solar panels. Probably have it if you're you're living in this sort of apartment environment, but you can charge it up in any way, shape, or form that's convenient to you because you're only going to need to charge your car maybe once a week, once a fortnight, and so you've got it charged up, ready to go, and then you, you move your suitcase out, plug in, bang, you're done. So there's a range of solutions happening out there.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Here's another story from the EV files. Our current application of fundamental inorganic chemistry just doesn't allow EV batteries to work efficiently in cold temperatures. But, of course, EV makers aren't about to let that stand in the way of a transport revolution. Matt, how do we get an EV to crawl out from under the doona on a cold winter's morning?
1: Well, it's not a bad idea. Put a doona over it, maybe, just to, <laughs> to warm it up It's only going to
0: trap the heat that's already there. True, true. Yeah.
1: So, freezing temperatures, I'm talking freezing here can reduce the range of an EV by 16 up to 46%. Mm. So EVs don't love the cold. Now, people talk about that as one of the issues with an EV. Don't forget that an internal combustion engine vehicle can also reduce its range by anywhere from 15 to 24% in those same freezing temperatures. Mm. Now, of course, the big thing with an EV is that it's a bit longer to charge up. So if I run out of petrol quicker because it's really cold, it's still pretty quick for me to fuel up. So I understand that argument, but... It's not as if all these things happen to EVs only. Same with air resistance. We talk about the fact that you drive fast, you double your speed, you quadruple your resistance. Mm. That's in an EV. That's in a petrol car as well. So yeah. they're the same. One of the things that a lot of manufacturers are doing is they're putting heat pumps in their vehicles. And I, I run off a few brands here. Teslas, Jaguars, BMWs, Hyundais, Audis, Kias, they've all got heat pumps. Now, I want to talk about heat pumps a little bit more because I've actually heard the term heat pump thrown around a lot lately. It seems to be a trendy term. I've heard heat pumps in terms of cars, EVs. I've heard heat pumps in terms of now swimming pools are using heat pumps to heat up. I've heard heat pumps for air conditioning. and but Again, I get
0: a sense there's heat pumps and then there's heat pumps.
1: Well, you're right, but heat pumps go back a long time. And the heat pump – well, we probably all use a heat pump every day. A refrigerator, effectively, mm. is a heat pump – It's just taking the heat from our refrigerator and putting it to the outside world. The great thing about a heat pump is that a heat pump moves heat from one location to another rather than generates heat. And the example I would give using some numbers here is if you use something like a bar radiator to generate some heat. If you're trying to heat your house up, I've got a bar radiator. I run electricity through a resistor. It gets hot. And so if I use one kilowatt hour of electricity, I've added pretty close to one kilowatt hour of thermal energy to my house in a bar radiator. So they talk about the coefficient of performance, Mm -hmm. and that coefficient of performance is one. When I take a heat pump, and even if the outside temperature was, say, 10 degrees Celsius, and I'm trying to warm up my house to 20 degrees Celsius, there's still enough warmth in that 10 degrees Celsius outside that if I ran that and used one kilowatt hour of electricity... I would add five kilowatt hours of thermal energy to a room. So I'm getting a coefficient of five instead of a coefficient of one. Yeah, right. So that's the advantage of a heat pump. Now, a heat pump, I'm sure you can me about the science more, but if we look at the second law of thermodynamics and the ideal gas law, or there are actually a number of laws in the ideal gas law. Yeah, yeah, there's about
0: three or four, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so
1: if I look at those two, basically that's where we get a heat pump. So energy, second law of thermodynamics, a range of different ways to state it, but energy naturally flows from a region of higher temperature to a region of lower temperature. And I often think about a coffee cup as an example of that. You put a, a hot coffee cup, or with coffee in it, not just the cup, a hot coffee cup in a room at room temperature, well, the heat flows from the coffee cup to the room. Yeah. So it goes from sense. high to low. And then the one of the ideal gas laws talks about when the pressure of a gas decreases the temperature decreases so i think Mm. about air coming out of a tire you you hold the valve down that air comes out cold obviously as the pressure increases the temperature increases so using that then some of those principles were used in a refrigerator that was designed back in 1834 that was the first practical refrigerator even in 1877 the first heat pump was installed at the becks salt works in switzerland so the concept's been around for a while I'm not sure why it's become trendy now, but Mm. again, I think we've become much more efficient to the point where you start to talk about heat pumps in vehicles. And Tesla, for example, what they're doing to generate their heat for a battery is they're taking heat from lots of different places across the vehicle, 16 different heat sources on the vehicle to try and get heat into the batteries without expending too much energy because obviously you don't want to use any battery power.
0: That makes sense. You, heat's often regarded as a wasted energy, mm. but if you can just channel that heat somewhere that you need it...
1: That's right. Uh,
0: ...it's not; it's less is wasted.
1: And you think of a computer, you think about your notebook, you're working away, you're doing some really hard work, it sometimes gets a bit warmer. Well, that's exactly what Tesla does, for example. They'll take their onboard computers, and there's a processor on there that would normally have a heat sink on there, or you might channel that heat away. Well, let's use that heat to keep the batteries warm. Mm-hmm. So pretty clever a way of doing it in a petrol engine car you're only converting about 20% of your your actual energy in your petrol to propulsion. You're doing a lot of it to noise and a lot of it to heat. And so you can use that heat to, say, warm the cabin up. Or if you need to have some heat somewhere else on the windscreen to get rid of some fog or whatever, then you can use that heat with electric vehicles converting maybe 75% of its energy into propulsion. So you haven't got all this wasted heat. So using heat pumps is quite a clever way of doing it. So heat pumps, concept's been around for a while. They're getting better all the time. It's not a really trendy term, oh, Well, maybe it is a trendy term, but it is something that's very basic science that's been around for a long time, but used in quite a clever way. So heat pumps on electric vehicles, if you're buying one, I'd be looking at that as one of the first requirements. Even if you're not living in freezing temperatures, using that heat pump anytime is a good idea. Hmm.
0: Well, Let's keep this EV theme rolling while it's hot. Petrol heads out there will throw their hands up in disgust, but EV racing is gaining traction and the pits are becoming a lot quieter. Honda are throwing a lot into electric go-kart racing and not only is it going to increase the fun exponentially, but innovations in go-karts often find their way into the big car racing and then into the general EV market. Matt, what is the big news here from Honda? Honda.
1: I want to drive one of these. Honda has got this EGX electric go-kart concept. Now, I used to race mm-hmm. go-karts many years ago, and I, I, I love the go-kart. It's pretty raw. You're, you're pretty close yeah. to the ground. Everything's pretty that direct. That
0: sense of speed is, is right there because you are so close to the ground.
1: Absolutely right. And the sense of racing, when you've got someone right beside you there bumping tyres and bumping pods beside you, it's it's Pretty hectic, but it's fantastic. But I love how quickly they accelerate because there's mm. not a lot of weight. There's a bit of the weight of you and the, the go-kart and that's it. And the corner is so direct, so it's very exciting. But you and I know what an electric vehicle feels like when it accelerates, and then you apply yeah. that to a go-kart and I want to have a go (laughs) at one of these things because it sounds fantastic. (laughs) Now, they've got two battery packs as well, so two 10-kilogram battery packs sit on either side of the driver. That would be typically, I would imagine, around those pod areas that you normally have between the wheels. Yeah. So you've got that weight down low because one of the things with a go-kart is sometimes you've got a bit of the weight up a bit higher being the human but having that weight down nice and low low. with those two battery packs they can swap in and out if they need to for a race for example but
0: having that extra weight as well just to hold you a bit harder on the ground
1: well it probably would slow down your acceleration I would normally say to to start with but we Mm. know how quick an EV accelerates so having that bit of extra weight on the tyres to give you a little bit of extra grip sounds like it would make sense as well but they do sound like absolute rockets they run for about 45 minutes before you've got to swap those battery packs out if they were racing most of the time the races would be less than 45 minutes anyway unless you're doing some sort of endurance race
0: but they can be swapped out rather than being recharged
1: correct that's right so you come into the pitch you pull one out you drop one in off you go again and you go out for another 45 (laughs) minutes In so it sounds fantastic now Honda do love their racing engines, 18 IndyCar championships Honda's got under their belt, 15 Indianapolis 500 wins in 30 years, so a pretty good hit rate there. Yeah, yeah. So they do love their racing, and they're not going to develop something like this if they don't think there's some value in it long term. Obviously, you're talking about where we're headed with Formula E, Formula 1, what's yeah. going to happen in that space there. IndyCar series this year is featuring hybrid units with 2.2 litre engines. Obviously Formula 1 already uses some hybrid technology in what they're doing, but I still love Formula E. I love watching Formula E. I think it's fascinating. And just the sound, I mean, I know that's what some people yeah, might the, say.
0: There's not the same noise, <laughs> it's is there? There's not the
1: same noise, that's right. But when I go to a Formula One race, I put earplugs in because it is so loud. Yeah. A Formula E race, I haven't been to one yet, but I watch it on TV. I go, it just sounds pretty cool, that sort of <laughs> whirr you find. So the fact that you've got these sort of devices coming out, and I know, again, having race go karts, there's a lot of fiddling you do. Sometimes yeah. if you haven't, if I've had left the go-kart parked in my garage for a month and then I get it out to race again, then oh, I'll put some new spark plugs in because I've gummed up now. Yeah. There's so much fiddle with running a go-kart. That's one of the great things about EVs in general. The maintenance is so low. So you just say, <laughs> oh no, we put a new battery pack Drag
0: here. it out of the shed and go
1: racing. Yeah. So I don't know. When we'll see these in Australia, Honda is basically introducing these at the moment. I'm sure other manufacturers will as well. There'll be some categories that will start in it, but I want to get my hands on one. Well,
0: I'm interested to know where it leads to.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, that's true too. Are we getting to the stage where it seems like a bit pointless to keep running around with petrol cars developing those, petrol go-karts, when really the rest of the world is moving on to electric vehicles? We know a lot of the racing that happens, whether it be Formula 1, Indy, or even go-karts. A lot of the development that happens for a lot of those is to get it into consumer cars, ultimately. And I know Honda talk about themselves as being a racing organisation as their core, and then they just happen to sell cars to pay for it. I know Ferrari, that's exactly what Ferrari was all about. It's like, we race cars... We need to get some money to race those cars, <laughs> so we should sell some as well. So you you want to be able to develop those, I suppose, to get to the stage where you're developing... Technology for consumers. And if you're talking about Formula E, you're trying to get longer range, faster range, all sorts of things out of electric cars. Then that's going to come through to consumer cars In ultimately.
0: The meantime, it's just a whole lot of fun. It sounds like that's, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and that is all we have for you today. As I figuratively check the bottom of the barrel, there is not so much as a scrape left. We've cleaned it out completely, but the good news is that we'll have a brand new barrel spilling over the top for you next week. Nice work, Matt! Another cracking
1: tech talk for this week. You might be able to hear that little buzz in the background there. That's me about to strap on that belt that I got out of the buckle out of the barrel <laughs> and see how I go with my bone density for the next no, nobody,
0: week. Yeah, let's get a bit more of that going. Uh, it was nice to hear some stories about the um, EVs and from the EV sphere. It feels like it's been a while since we last chatted about EV vehicles. Uh, as I see, oh, well, I see more and more as I drive about. More and more people getting on board with EVs. It's not an exclusive club, folks. Joining will make you feel like a reformed smoker. And the developments in the tech are moving fast to give you fewer and fewer reasons to get internal combustion on your next purchase. Be that as it may. Thank you for tuning in once again, folks, to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. I'm your host, James Eddy, and it is our pleasure to bring you this wholesome, homegrown, gluten-free podcast, minus any artificial sweeteners and preservatives. Tune in next week when we bring you another nine servings of what's good for you. Like us, subscribe to us, bring your friends, see you next
1: week.